We talk about the subject of redeeming Christmas. Uh, You hear at this time of year again and again and again that so many symbols of the season have pagan roots. And, um, you know, if we were to never do anything to celebrate on a day where a pagan god was worshipped, there would be no days left on the calendar to celebrate. And if we were to do away with every symbol that the pagans have embraced over the years in some way or another, we would have no symbols. Uh, Now, listen, we don't want to be guilty of idolatry, or whether that be a tree or Santa Claus or anything else. We We don't want to be guilty of taking our eyes off of Jesus. But when we talk about redeeming Christmas, can we do something to help us see the imagery of Christmas in a new light? To help us not only be reminded of who Jesus is and what he's done, but help us to share that with others, to take opportunity, maybe to create traditions with your family in order that you can use those traditions to point people to Jesus. You know, one of the traditions in my home has been over the years not uh, simply to read the Christmas narrative that we'll be looking at in the next couple of weeks out of Luke's gospel or Matthew's gospel, But to look at what John said about Christmas, we might call this more of a theological narrative, if you will. So turn with me this morning to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, we're going to look at some scripture there. And uh, later on, we'll also flip over to a famous passage in John chapter 3. So thank you for standing in the honor of reading God's word together this morning. Let's look at these first 14 verses. He says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, all things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Life was in him, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man named John who was sent from God. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light, the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him. Keep that in mind. A lot of people like to say that um, Jesus was not fully God, but this is evidence of the deity of Christ in the New Testament. He created the world. Yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. Here's one of the greatest Christmas verses in all of the Bible, right? The word, that word that was with God, the word that was God became flesh, and it took up residence among us. We observed his glory, the glory is of the only begotten or the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Father, we thank you for Jesus, the light of the world. And Lord, I pray that in these days ahead, we will learn to take advantage of every opportunity to be reminded in our own hearts of the true meaning of Christmas, but also to use everything that is around us and all that you've done in us to share that message with others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. 
You know, this uh, weekend, uh, America is saying goodbye to George H.W. Bush, uh, I believe was a great man. I believe he was a great president. I don't think everyone understood some of the things that he was all about, and because sometimes he was misunderstood, it might have cost him even a, a re-election. I, I think he had high hopes for humanity. Maybe he saw more in others than they saw in themselves at some time, but it certainly motivated his own family uh, to be prosperous in so many ways. This 41st president of the United States was someone who was a war hero, and uh, I remember back in 92, I thought there was no way that um, uh, war hero would not be elected over someone who did all they could to avoid going to war. And yet, he was not appreciated. And he was even made fun of for something that I thought, man, he gets it. And, and many in the church get it, but a lot of people aren't getting it. And, and that's his thousand points of light campaign. Do you remember that phrase, thousand points of of light. How many of you even remember that? Raise your hands. Boy, it stood out to me as a college student who was trying to find where I'm going to stand socially and eth- ethically and, and other things. And because I believe you should truly desire to help people. That there are needy people and, and hurting people all around the world and all around this nation, and somebody needs to do something about it. And he was saying he did not believe it was necessarily the government's responsibility to raise everybody's taxes just to take care of all of those needs and establish more entitlement programs. And he saw the danger in the government having so much control, but he said, man, if we had volunteer organizations, he said, if churches and, and other volunteer organizations and communities were established in such a way where they could get to know the people around them, investigate the needs, and truly meet the deepest and greatest needs. And in fact, in his Thousand Points of Light campaign, he would reward organizations that were doing just that. He was saying, rather than, rather than government trying to be some bright light for everybody to look to, he said, if we had all across this nation thousands of points of lights. And I remember he commissioned uh, a song, a Jerome Olds wrote a song that Lornell Harris made famous that said, there is a mighty spirit. And uh, th- that was to tr- really try to inspire Christians and other volunteers to, to serve and to represent the ministry of meeting needs all over the place. Some of them were uh, devoutly Christian and some were not so, but, but the philosophy behind it all won me over. It was something that I felt like churches and other volunteer organizations needed to get behind and be mobilized. Less uh, government, less middleman, so to speak, and more people being aware that they can be a point of light where they live. And so I I see the church in so many ways being that biblically that, that Jesus Christ was the true light of the world and if he is in us that he should be shining through us. How is Jesus in the world today? Well, when he came into the world, there's no doubt he was that light of the world. That light was shining in the darkness. The darkness could not overcome it. The, the, the darkness could not absorb it or do away with it. But now Christ is in us, the hope of glory, and we are, Jesus even said, you are the light of the world. And so we still struggle grasping that. You want to change the world. You want to leave the world a better place. Let Jesus be Jesus in you. 
John is writing this gospel, and he's writing more theologically and philosophically than, than the narratives that we see in Matthew and Luke. And he's writing at a later age to a different age. And obviously, he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he's writing with an awareness that people would be skeptics, and they would be cynics, and they wouldn't know whether or not to brace Jesus, if they could even understand why there was a need for Christ. And today, some intentional, others by default, are much like those in that first century when it came to a knowledge of God. There are people today that would call themselves agnostic, and they would say, we are without knowledge, maybe Maybe there is a God, but if there is a God, he is so transcendent that there's no way that we mere mortals could know him. And there are others who, it's not that they're agnostic, they're just simply apathetic. (laughs) This is a a generation that's being called today the rise of the nuns. They're none of the above. It's not that they say they don't believe in God, it's that they just don't even think about God. It's like the young man who was asked one day, what do you think the biggest problem in the world is? Ignorance or apathy? And he said, I don't know, and I don't care. And and right, so people are either agnostic, they just don't know, or they're apathetic. They really just don't care. They don't care to know. They don't care to know if there's a God or not. And few people, fewer people are thinking about the eternal consequences of that than ever before. I want us to look at chapter 1, and then we'll flip over and closing to chapter 3 in a moment. And see three aspects of the incarnation. What do we mean by the incarnation? The word incarnation is just a fancy word for, for putting on flesh. That, that word carnate has to do with flesh. It means God the Son became man and dwelt among us. And so we see this description of the incarnation, the, the becoming of flesh of Almighty God here in John chapter 1. And what was going on with that? What's that all about, Jesus being the light of the world? First aspect I want you to see of the incarnation this morning is that God was revealing himself through Christ. There are different kinds of revelation we read about in Scripture. There's what we would call general revelation, a general revealing of God to us, meaning that throughout history or in creation, those things that we had observed when we look at a vast ocean or when we go to the North Georgia mountains in the fall and we see the leaves changing colors, that those things that would tell us, man, God has to be real. Those things that happen around us and that we interpret subjectively, we don't know why it happened or how it's happening, but we would just say, man, how can you deny there's a God? But that's general revelation. It doesn't tell us specifically who God is. We have two forms, though, of special revelation. That is the Word of God, the Bible, that is God-breathed, God-inspired, and given to us. And we have Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God. Special revelation, so we can make no mistake about who God is. And so verse 1 says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. This description And according to a Trinitarian view, we even see it in the Old Testament that Christ was with God, creating the world, even the Holy Spirit hovering over the face of the deep from the very beginning. The Greek word here that John uses is the word logos, the word for word. Logos has to do with reason, purpose, communication, In in other words, everything that God is, that the agnostic would say, we can't get our mind around that. God says, I'm going to explain all of that in Christ. 
that which made the world make sense was the Logos. And Christ was the one who gave meaning and sense to all of the world. And so God was revealing himself through Christ. Now, those secular philosophers and even Christian theologians all agree there's, if there is a God, he has to be transcendent. He has to be so far above and beyond all of us. But the Christian gospel says that, that not only is God transcendent, high and above, and there's no way that we could ever reach his infinite holiness, but, but God is also imminent, that, that he is with us. And we might say, how can we reconcile all of that? Well, he was with God, verse 2 says, in the beginning. So we know Jesus is the eternal with the Father. He was with God creating, verse 3. Apart from him, nothing was created that has been created. Colossians chapter 1, another one of those great Christological passages, describes him as the creator, all things created by him and for him. Life was in him. That life was the light of man. The the hope of mankind in the midst of a dark world was in Jesus Christ. And the darkness couldn't extinguish it, couldn't overcome it. If your translation says comprehend it, that doesn't just mean they couldn't understand it. It means it couldn't squelch it. It couldn't absorb it. Then it gives an example of John being a witness to that light sent from God. Notice it says Specifically, he was not a Logos, right? He was not the Word, the God-man, but he was a man. He was merely a man, and he would be a witness to that light. He would testify to that light so that all might believe through him. And every individual Christian and every Christian symbol that we use should be used to point people to Jesus Christ, not to be the object of our worship. John didn't have a Messiah complex. Remember, he said, I've got to become less, that he becomes greater still. So that what? All might believe through him. He was not the light. He came to testify about the light, the true light who gives light to everyone had come into the world. So the skeptic might say, well, how can he be holy and transcendent and yet imminent? And by the way, the word imminent means with us or within our boundaries. It was a a phrase that was used to mean on our property, and so we talk about things like eminent domain, right? Uh, but, it's, but, but he came into our neighborhood. He came to be with us. How could he be both transcendent and eminent? And why would God choose to do that? As we look at some other scripture, we'll see some of the whys behind this. But C.S. Lewis challenges his readers to ask or to imagine if they would be willing to leave their spouse or their children because they happen to observe their dog and they learn that all of dogs, do we have any dog lovers here? <laughs> they learn that all of the dogs in the world are greatly distressed, greatly diseased, and the only way that you could save dogdom, so to speak, paraphrasing what C.S. Lewis said, But the only way that you could save the the, the dogs throughout the world would be for you to leave your spouse, to leave your children, and to become a dog yourself. Could you imagine doing that? Some of you, I saw the shaggy DA, I thought it would be kind of cool, right? Would you be willing to leave all of that behind to become a, a dog, to be diseased and distressed with them, 
in order to save them from dying because they needed you. Could you imagine being kicked and shunned and somebody yelling, get on out of here as we do in the South, right? Kicked and shunned and and, and maybe shot at, driven away, run over and abused. Could you imagine going through all of that? And listen, what would be the most difficult part about that would be if you lost the ability to have communication and affection with your spouse and enjoy what you once had with your children. And here's what C.S. Lewis, and I I quote what he said about that. He said, Christ, by becoming man, limited the, the thing which to him was the most precious thing in the world, his unhampered, unhindered, communion with God. He left all of that that he might reveal who God was to us. Christ, the Son of God and God the Son who became man was showing us how to live, how to love, how to do life. And as we'll see in a moment, he was showing us even through his death how much the Father loved us. Not only was Christ revealing God, but in Christ, God was relating to us through Christ. See, God created us for the purpose of a relationship from the very beginning. But from the moment Adam and Eve took from the tree and they did eat and their eyes were open, they understood their own shame and their nakedness and their sin and they began to to hide from God from that day, this Christmas message was already in motion. In fact, Jesus Christ is referred to as the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. And so God already had a plan in place in his understanding, in his full knowledge that man would sin and fall short of his glory. And so God is relating to us, not just revealing himself to us through Christ, but he's relating to us through Christ. Verse 11, he came to his own. He came to the Jewish people. Christ was born of the tribe, the house of the lineage of David, the tribe of Judah. He came into his own. His own did not receive him. Oh, Paul cries out that they will, and he, he ensures us that one day a remnant will return. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be called the children of God. To those who believe in his name, those are the ones that would have a relationship with God through Christ, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. They are born again into this relationship with God through Christ. And there's no other name given under heaven among men by which we might be saved in the name Jesus Christ. Only one God, because there is only one God, could become man and dwell among us so that we might, through a relationship with him, have that relationship restored to God. That word became flesh. He took up residence. Eugene Peterson says he he moved into our neighborhood. That's his translation. And we observed his glory the glory of the one and only Son, 
the one and only begotten of the Father. And get this, he was full of grace and truth. As a holy, transcendent God who was true and righteous and just and could do no wrong, he was also full of grace, eminent with us, loving us, showing us how we could have a relationship with God through him. That's the incarnation. God becoming one of us that he might relate to us while remaining fully God. To help us grasp things we could never grasp. Because we are not living in that realm, that we're not in that realm yet. Not until we step into eternity one day. You ever thought about that? What, what will it be like? And when we couldn't figure out how to get to heaven or understand what heaven was like, heaven came to us. We sang it earlier. Heaven came down in Christ so that that relationship might give us a little bit of heaven on earth because we're having a relationship with God. And we can only dream about that. In fact, there was a movie in the 1980s called Field of Dreams. How many of you saw the movie Field of Dreams? You see that movie? Here? Man, speaking of pagan roots, man, it was full of new age doctrine. I still like the movie because I'm a big baseball fan, right? So I watch it because of all the, the, the baseball stories and stuff like that. But man, a lot, a lot of new age language was in that movie, but it shows us, it kind of revealed to us that we want to know what's on the other side. Well, in that movie... You know, in this particular case, it was the Chicago White Sox, well, the Black Sox, as they became known as. They came back because, you know, Kevin Costner plowed under his corn in Iowa and built a baseball field because he heard a voice say, build it and they will come, right? Build it and they will come. So you've watched the movie too, you pagans. Anyway, we're a bunch of new agers this morning right now. Just kidding. Like me, you watch it because you like baseball. But now they... So they came back and they played, but that wasn't really the purpose of his building the field, was it? The real purpose of his building the field is revealed kind of at the end of the movie when the other players come to be on the opposite team, and he realizes that the catcher behind that catcher's mask the whole time was his father, whom he had a strained relationship with. And there were some things unresolved that needed to be taken care of. And so now he's playing pitch. Now he's relating to his father. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could bring heaven into our realm like that? Only did that happen in Jesus Christ where God the Son became flesh so that we could have a relationship with God through him. You want to know God, you have to know his Son, Jesus Christ. And apart from a knowledge of his Son, you cannot know the Father. Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Jesus. And so that's why we celebrate Christmas. No other religion offers God becoming flesh and dwelling among us so that we can know him through his son. And even now, when Jesus ascended to be with the Father, he sends the Holy Spirit. And as God was with us, Emmanuel, in Christ, now the Holy Spirit is Christ in us. So we're relating to the Father. This Christmas, you have, have a lot to celebrate, but if you reject that relationship, there's a warning in Hebrews, and for some of us, we come so close at Christmas season, we, we've tasted so much that we miss or we reject intentionally or we walk away from opportunity 
In Hebrews 6, it says that it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened. You saw the light. You experienced the light. Who tasted the heavenly gift became companions with the Holy Spirit. Tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age. And who have fallen away because to their own harm they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. Some will say, well, this is a hypothetical passage. And others will say, these apostates, they knew Jesus and they walked away from that. And others will say, man, they, they were on the verge. They were so close. But the bottom line is every one of us need to ask this morning, am I in a relationship with Jesus Christ? Is his spirit bearing witness with my, with my spirit that I'm a child of God? Can I cl- truly claim, John 1, 12, that I know that I've called upon his name? And because I've called upon his name, I have the right to be called a child of God because that relationship is real, that I am walking with him. John would go on to write in 1 John, in his letter, verses 1 through 4, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our own eyes, what we have observed and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That life was revealed and we have seen it and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us what we have seen and heard. We are preaching it to you. We declare this to you so that you may have fellowship along with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. He's saying, man, it, we saw it, we experienced it, we touched it, but I'm telling you something else, it went deeper than that. We had fellowship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, and you, through the Spirit of God, can have that same fellowship, that same relationship. God is relating to us through Christ. And finally, this morning, I want you to see that God was redeeming the world through Christ. His transcendence would enable him to remain holy, but in his eminence, he would redeem a sin-fallen world. It was not sufficient for him just to reveal himself as a transcendent God, but as an eminent son of God. He would die for the sins of the world. Back in John's gospel, I want you to flip over to chapter 3. You know the story of Jesus having a conversation with Nicodemus, and he's talking about the importance of being born again. Chapter 1, he had already talked about not being born of this world. And then he tells Nicodemus, if I told you about these things that that happen on earth and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about things of heaven? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. What what happened? Remember when, when God sent the vipers in numbers to uh, Israelites were grumbling and complaining, and they were diseased, and they were dying because of the, the poison snake bites. And so Moses was to put a, a bronze serpent on a pole and lift that up, and if they looked by faith at that pole, they would be healed of their disease. Jesus is saying, just as that serpent was lifted up, I'm going to be lifted up. And that's why I said when you look at a Christmas tree, remember that Christ would die on a tree for the sins of the world. He said the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. And then the verses we love so dearly, for God so loved the world 
this way, that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. You ever ask children what they want to be when they grow up? You remember looking in your own children's face when they were born? Maybe the first child that you had. You can remember that moment when you, when you first became a father, you first became a mother, and you looked in their face and you wonder, what are they going to be when they grow up? What are they going to be like? What are they going to do? What are they going to desire to do? And, and can you imagine their dreams? It, it would just blow you away. You would ask son, daughter, or maybe a group of kids in a, in a nursery or a preschool, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a nurse, a doctor. I want to be a police officer. I want to be a firefighter. I want to be a professional athlete. I want to be a preacher. I want to be a missionary. And it's so full of life, so full of dreams. You're like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Can you imagine? This one songwriter wrote, Mary, did you know? What was Jesus going to grow up to do? To be lifted up on a tree to be lifted up on a cross so he might be able to draw all men to the Father. John the Baptist saw it. Remember, he testified of the light, the true light. John wasn't the light, but he pointed people to Jesus. He said, I've got to become less that he becomes greater still. And with great passion and enthusiasm, he's out there baptizing people and preparing them for the Messiah. And he's pointing people to Jesus. And then Jesus walks on the scene. And at that point, He didn't say, behold, King of kings and Lord of lords, and the world will say that one day. He didn't at that point say, oh, there's my family member, man. He's the coolest guy I've ever known. But the Spirit of God revealed something to John the Baptist, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God was redeeming the world to himself through Christ never forget at Christmas when we celebrate Messiah's birth that he was born to die. He was born to take on the sins of the world. Why did we need a Christmas? Why was Christmas necessary? Because only a transcendent, holy, perfect, righteous God could pay the price for our sins. But only mankind owed the price. And there had to be one who was fully God and fully man at the same time. And I'll never be able to get my mind around how Jesus could be fully God and fully man at the same time. How he could be impeccable when it came to sin, yet could be tempted like as we are without sin. I'll never understand all of that. But that's not the greatest mystery of Christmas. The greatest mystery of Christmas is why would the Son of God want to become a man that's infinitely more difficult to comprehend than us trying to think of becoming a dog? Why would the Son of God become a man when we were going to treat him the way we would treat him? Because that was the only way he could redeem the world. Because he loved you and he loved me. That's the mystery. Why does he love us so much? He's God. That's his character. That's his nature. Never forget that at Christmas.
See that manger in the shadow of a cross every time you see it. Would you bow your heads with me?